Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone uh, this morning. My, what a good group this is. Uh, such a blessing, such an encouragement. Someone said, uh, I heard not long ago on a, a panel discussion, one of the questions was, um, what's the best way to, in, to encourage your pastor? And one of the panelists spoke up very quickly and said, show up. <laughs> and you have, you've shown up this morning, and I am extremely encouraged. There's just no place like here. I mean, we can go a lot of places, we can do a lot of things, we can enjoy a lot of things, but there is something about coming here on a Sunday morning and gathering as God's people and as God's church that supersedes other places and other things that we do. There's just, it, it just cannot be replaced. I get so tired of hearing about virtual church. There's no such thing as a virtual church. The very definition of church is a gathering of believers for corporate worship. That's the definition. And you can't have that unless you actually gather. And so I'm, I'm pleased, I'm thankful for all of you and for your faithfulness to, to be here and for your, your faithfulness to the Word of God and, uh, that's, that's a blessing. So with that, let's go to John chapter 5. We've been looking at this passage in John 5, verses 17 through 47. We're working our way through it. We come to a, a different uh, section this morning. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, those around who've gathered around him at Jerusalem, beginning now in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come once again. We gather here today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to worship you, to worship Christ in the Spirit by the Word of God. We thank you that we have been born and live in a place where we can gather as we do and enjoy the fellowship that we have in you together. And so we pray this morning as your word is opened up to us that you would receive glory, that Christ would be honored and made made central and worship from our hearts would be true and pleasing in your sight. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Son has the power to raise the dead souls of people whom He chooses to give life. Plainly stated in this scripture, of all the people that were at the pool that day, when Jesus entered that scene, He chose one man to heal. One. That's reminiscent of the, of the multitudes of people that live on the face of the earth and those whom God chooses out of their number. This is in conjunction with the work of the Father. All of those whom the, whom the Father chooses, the Son chooses. And so he also has the authority handed to him by the Father to execute judgment on all mankind. All of these and all of the previous acts of Christ are undeniable proofs that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now I want you to notice in verse 23 the reason the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The reason is because there there is honor that is due to the Father... And there is honor that is due to the Son, and the honor to to each is equal to each other. This is another proof of Christ's deity. If Jesus and the Father are equal in essence, and equal in works, and equal in sovereign power and judgment, then it is reasonable that they should that they should have the same honor as each other. They share in this. Now there are those who believe that they are doing God's work and God's will while seeking to honor Him, but at the same time rejecting the Son. There are people, there were people in like this in Jesus' day, and there are people like this now. People who say that they worship God, but they reject Christ. They come from all different stripes of both false 
religion and true religion. Or what we would call Christianity. This is why Jesus said, whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Jews believed that they were worshiping God. And yet, at the same time, they rejected God's Son. D.A. Carson writes, In a theistic universe, such, such a statement belongs to the one who is himself to be addressed as God. Or to stark insanity. It's one or the other. The one who utters such things is to be dismissed with pity or scorn or worshipped as Lord. The same options confront us. Either John is supremely deluded and must be dismissed as a fool... Or his witness is true and Jesus is ascribed the honors due to God alone. There is no rational middle ground. You cannot kind of have Jesus. You cannot almost be a Christian. Even though Paul said to Agrippa... Almost. Almost. Many times Jesus is attributed worship and honor to himself. He had, to himself, Jesus ascribed honor as the same as the Father, equal to the Father. Turn to chapter 6, look at verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You want to do the work, works of God? Believe in me, Jesus said. That's the work of God. He ascribed himself as being equal with God in that statement. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? He answered, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. You cannot get away from the fact that to, to hate Jesus is to hate the father, to love Jesus is to love the father, because they are equal to one another. <clears throat> In fact, John writes in in his first epistle, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
The knowledge of one necessitates the knowledge of the other. The hatred of one extends to the other. Denial of one is to renounce the other. So people even today who are worshiping God, quote unquote, they're worshiping God, but they do not hold Jesus to be the Son of God, are denying God. It is easy and common to deny God by ascribing, by not ascribing due honor to the Son. That's very common in our time. We say that we are coming to worship God and to honor His name. But if Christ Jesus is not the central figure, then we have denied God and do injustice to His name. Now for us, we work very, we work very diligently to make sure that Jesus Christ is central. We do that every week. Everything we do points to the centrality of Christ in in God. That's why you don't see up here anything that has to do with anything except what the Scriptures teach. We don't put up American flags or Christian flags or any of that kind of stuff. We're not going to put up anything that detracts from who Jesus Christ is as God. Because we want Him to be central. All of our music, all of our services are all centered around that nucleus. So how do we honor the Son and consequently honor the Father as well? We honor God by acknowledging that Jesus is who He claimed to be. He is God in the flesh, and if so, then we must bow to His authority and obey His words. We do what He says. That means that our opinions must be shaped to His opinions and our views to His views. That means that even the hard and most uncomfortable and unfashionable ones that go against the mainstream of the world's thinking. This includes teachings about salvation. I was talking, we were talking this morning earlier about uh, how we, we grew up as Christians back in the 70s when when we were saved and uh, and we were taught the Bible, we, we were taught under certain uh, certain doctrinal guidelines, and those those some of those guidelines were not exactly scriptural. They didn't fit with the flow of Scripture as a whole. And uh, you know, we we were taught, and we grew up, and we we just clung on to those things until one day uh, we began to see things that just didn't line up with how we'd been taught all those years. It just didn't line up. What do you do when the Bible says something different than what you've been taught? You believe what the book says. And you search 
out to find out what it says, and you cling to that no matter what anybody else says. So when our opinions clash with the world's opinions, what do we do? If our opinions indeed are based upon biblical truth. Jesus' teachings about salvation, about creation, about the sexes, about life and death and how we're to live in this life. He has given to us all of these things clash with the world's view. That's why it's so important for young people to have a biblical worldview. Where that you see the world through the lens of Scripture. Where that you see it biblically. And when you see things that don't line up with the Bible, you follow the Bible. I'll be honest with you. I find that there are not that many young people who have a truly biblical worldview. They've been brainwashed by the society, by the entertainment, by the schools, by the colleges. They've been brainwashed to believe that which is contrary to Scripture. Is the, the real question is, is Jesus Lord or is He not? That's the real bottom line question. Is Jesus Christ Lord or is He not? If Jesus is Lord, and we believe He is our Lord, then we must show Him the honor that He deserves. And when we do, We automatically give honor to the Father, and God is glorified. The Jews thought that they were honoring God, but they were not because they refused to recognize and honor the Son. It is either both or neither. Both or neither. I am the Lord. These are the very verses that... uh, Brother Dave read this morning, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Chapter 48 of Isaiah, for mine own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The day is coming. And it may not be far into the future when all of humanity will appear before the Son and He will receive honor by the judgment given to Him by the Father. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about the honor that Jesus Christ receives that God the Father will receive by His judgment of people. Paul speaks to this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is what he says. Very familiar to all of us. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things on earth, of things under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. When that day comes, every knee bowed before the King of Kings, their mouths will open and they will say, You are Lord. And no one will be able to say any different. It is at that time that the Son... And the Father will be honored equally as the Son is honored as Lord. This is truly a reason to say that Jesus is equal to God. Now we know that Jesus is defending himself here as God in the flesh. And it will eventually cost him his life. He is not debating with the Jews. I love this about the Lord. He doesn't debate with people. He just states plain facts. And that's the way to do it, folks. Follow his example. You'll have people that will want to argue with you about things. Don't argue with them. Just state the facts and then walk away. simply stated the facts that related to himself and then he let it lie there he is the son of god and he makes this bold these bold claims as to his deity <clears throat> now jesus reaffirms his power to give life to whomever he desires and he emphasizes that with truly Truly, I say to you, in verse 24. Now remember, he said that back up in verse 19. And so now he is repeating that statement. And it's an emphasis. What it does is it catches the attention of the person you're talking to. It's It's like saying, it's like saying, now listen to me carefully. I'm I'm telling you the truth. So that they listen to what he is actually saying. He uses this expression in verse 20 in verse 19, verse 24, verse 25. It signals his absolute honesty and truthfulness in speaking God's word. What is this word? It is the same as he delivered in verse 21, except here there is far more detail. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he will. To whom he desires. I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you deserve to have... 
what God has given you? Think about what you do deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve condemnation. You deserve hell and and suffering. But God has chosen to take all that away from you and give you instead life and peace and blessing and joy in the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What wonderful words these are. I have to remind myself often of the truth of these words. Because there's so often times that I don't feel like this. We cannot, we cannot base what God has done for us upon how we feel about it. If we do, we will, we'll go down. Because your feelings and my feelings are fickle. They change from day to day. We must, we must relate that to ourselves on what God says. What is the truth of the matter? Now, in verse 24, this verse emphasizes the need for the Word of God in salvation. There is no true gospel, no true gospel salvation without the Word of God. No one is saved without hearing the gospel through some means. Twenty years ago, there was a push among evangelical Christianity of a teaching that said, basically, that God can use other means to bring people to salvation. Max Lucado was one of those people who, who bought into that false teaching, claiming that people in islands of the sea who never have the gospel taken to them can look up into the sky and see the stars, and from that they can gather that there's a God and they can be saved. That is not true. No one's saved without the Word of God. For the Word of God contains the good news of the gospel. And no one can understand that unless it is taken to them. Or they, they see it in some means. God uses all kinds of means. But it still takes the Word of God to do it. The real problem is that humanity cannot hear God's message. They can't hear it. This was the difficulty when God told Isaiah to go to the people and give them his word. 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. There is something in the air today. And for me, it's just dust. I'm allergic to dust. How do you get away from dust? Rain. Yeah, something we really need. Isaiah 6, look at starting verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. And so God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What is God saying here to Isaiah? He's saying, go and take my word to the people. But Isaiah, I want you to tell them they're not going to hear it. I want you to know they're not going to hear it. They're not going to see it. They won't understand it. Isaiah goes on and says, well, how long am I supposed to do this? That's a, that is a good question. It's a legitimate question. If they can't see it, if they can't hear it, how long do I do this? And God says, until, until the cities are empty, until there's no inhabitants, just keep on preaching it. And that's the question. If, if they can't hear, why should we preach it? Seems like an act in futility. Notice verse 13 of that same chapter. Isaiah 6, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it. He's talking about the cities and the villages, the inhabitants. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You know what God is saying there? He's saying there will be a remnant. There will be a few. There will be a few who will hear it, who will see it. Now we know that the only way they see it is if God reveals it to them. The only way they hear it is if God opens their ears to hear it and opens their eyes to see it. That's the only way that they can hear it. There is no life in them that can see or hear. But God says, I mean, that's that's a good thing. If How long am I supposed to do this if they're not going to hear me or hear it or understand it? Well, you just keep on preaching it, Isaiah, because there will be a few. And we don't know who they are. God didn't brand them with some brand on their forehead so we could seek them out only. We preach the gospel to everyone. God knows who they are. He knows who He's chosen. We don't. They don't have the capacity to see or hear and they need help. Their ears have to be awakened to it. The job of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to open dead, deaf ears in lost people 
and show them their sinfulness. It is only the voice of the Son of God that can penetrate where death resides. And when His voice resonates in chosen ears, they hear it. I remember very clearly that evening, on a, that night in August of 1971, when I heard the voice of the Son of God. For the first time, really. I grew up in church, heard the gospel all my life, but I never understood it. I could not see it. But all of a sudden, God opened my eyes and he opened my ears and now I could see it. This is God's doing. These words of Christ have life-giving force that sends death packing and puts life in its place. This life is not of the temporal kind that eventually passes away. It is eternal life. And eternal life in the context of John 5 is equal to no condemnation in judgment. For those whose eyes and ears have been opened. They pass from one realm to another. From from death to life. From judgment to forgiveness. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's the same as what Jesus said to Martha. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, there are those who believe that salvation, once received, can be lost. I want you to think about this logically from the scripture. Jesus calls it eternal life for a reason. It is the life of God who is himself eternal. So it's not just any life. It's not human life. It's God's life. It's spiritual life. It is eternal life. So if a person, let's just Say, if a person receives this life, this eternal life, and then loses it, then it wasn't eternal. Because it's been lost. And if it's been lost, when God says it's eternal, that means that God has lied. And it wasn't really eternal after all. 
Do you see the problems? The theological problems in this? Because the scripture plainly teaches in Titus 1 verse 2 that God never lies. Listen to what he says. In hope of eternal life. Now remember, in, in the scriptures, hope is not a thing that may or may not happen. We say, we say, uh, what are you going to do next week? Well, I'm, I'm hoping to go on vacation next week. You hope something doesn't happen that keeps you from going on vacation. I've hoped to go on vacation before only to find out that someone has died and we have to come back from vacation. That's not that kind of hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is an absolute, sure, confident, positive assurance of something. So Paul says to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. He promised it to us. And he cannot lie. He never lies. Therefore, the life that Jesus gives us never ceases. It can't be lost. Otherwise, God has lied. Which is an impossibility. Now, look at verse 25. Because this is as far as I'm going to get this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I love this. I love this portion. I love John's writings. John is the most sovereign of all the gospel writers. So let's just look at the verse. Let's dissect this a bit. The world asks this question. What happens after death? <clears throat> the atheist would say, <clears throat> when people die, <clears throat> they, uh, they're like a dog or a cat. Life ends. There's nothing. After that. We're just, we're just like the animal world. But that's not what scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that in the creation, after God had created all the animal life, finally in the end he created man, and it says he blew into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And man became what? A living soul. That's not said about any of the other creatures that God created. Only man. So man has a different makeup in the created order of things than the rest of God's creation, of God's living creation. Man has a soul, an eternal soul that resides in a temporal body. So what is, is there anything after death? Will, will, the, will the dead live again? Or are they just like dogs that we bury and they're gone? The answer is yes. All people, now get this, 
get this clearly, all people, whether saved or lost, whether believing or unbelieving, will be raised to stand before the Creator. All will live again. In that sense. The resurrection of the dead is both a blessed and fearful event. <clears throat> it, is blessed, it is blessed for those who are in Christ because it means that they will experience the glory of never dying again. When they're resurrected. It is fearful for those without Christ because death is the final reality for them. They have not passed from death to life. Only the believing pass from death to life. And there are not very many of them in the order of the world's population over time. Listen to the scriptures, Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. What, what is that? The first resurrection is will happen at the coming of Christ for his church. When the dead are raised. And we meet him in the air. It's called the rapture. Over such, the second death has no power. The second death is the judgment of the lake of fire. Hell. Revelation 20 verse 14. The death, then death and hell or Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Final separation from God in the lake of fire. That's the second death. Now, for the believer, the first resurrection is what we're waiting for. That's what we're all hoping will happen in our lifetime. And believe we may be the generation that sees that. The way things seem to be going. You know, we have, it seems to escalate sometimes. It seems like it's going really fast toward the end. And then it backs off a little bit and slows down. And then something else happens and you think, oh, it's speeding up again. But God has appointed a day. In which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. There's a day set for these things. No one changes it. It comes at God's appointed time. The resurrection for the Christian has two aspects. The first aspect is the spiritual aspect of it. When a person is born again. They are resurrected with a spiritual resurrection that is like that of Christ. <clears throat> it's a spiritual resurrection. It is, it is one in which the effects can be seen, but the actual resurrection itself is, cannot be seen. It's silent. Christ died for our sin. And when we were saved by His grace, we died to our sin. 
that spiritual resurrection secures the spiritual life of the individual with Christ's life. In other words, it's called imputation. All of our sin was imputed to him. It was put on his account. And all of his righteousness and all of his goodness and all of his, his glory and his holiness has been accounted to us. It's been put on our account. So that when God looks at us and looks at our account, he doesn't see our sin anymore. It's gone. It's been taken by Christ and Christ has given us his righteousness. So that's on our account. So when God looks at us, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. And he is pleased to accept us under those conditions. And they're not our conditions, they're his. Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that I don't sin anymore? No, it means that sin does not control you anymore. It does not dominate your life. You can say no to it now by the power of God's Spirit. You can resist the devil and he will flee. Whereas you could not before. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Consider yourselves that. Make that promise yours. That's what Paul's saying. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. That's resurrection. A spiritual resurrection. We were made alive together with Christ. Like unto his resurrection. By grace you've been saved, he said. It's all by his grace. Nothing we did. We couldn't. We didn't deserve it. He did it all for us at His own desire and His own will. Now, the second aspect of resurrection is the physical aspect. We're still in these bodies of flesh. They grow old. They wear out. They get damaged, and they die. But as believers, we look forward to the resurrection that is ours in Christ. And there is a sure hope that we will have a new body, a different body, that is not subject to what this one is subject to. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, this body's wearing out. I need a new one. 
Paul speaks of it in Philippians 3. When he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior. Our citizenship is heaven. Did you know that? You're, you're here on earth, but your real citizenship is heaven. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. From heaven we await the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, this body of flesh, to be like His glorious body, that heavenly body that He possesses, by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. He has the power to subject everything to Himself. If He has that power, then He certainly has the power to change this vile body into a body that's like His. The word transform is a future tense verb meaning to transform in appearance, to change in outward structure, but not substance. What does that mean? That he's going to transform our vile bodies to like his body. Well, it means that our bodies will be glorified like his is. Our bodies will be immortal like his is. We will put away all the, all the scars and, and all of the effects of sin will be gone. This will happen at the rapture and it will be done in a split second. Paul calls it in the twinkling of an eye. Did you know the eye is Of all the parts of the human body, the eye has the ability to move the quickest. That's why when you're working or something and a chip flies towards your eye, you you can blink. Most of the time you can blink before it actually hits your eye, even at great speed. That's how quick it's going to happen. One, One moment we will be like this and the next we will be like that. I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. But I'm ready for it. I desire it. Many of the Old Testament saints knew and believed in a resurrection to life. Abraham believed that God would raise his son Isaac back to life if he sacrificed him on Mount Moriah. Job believed that he would be have a resurrected and new body. Daniel believed that there would be a resurrection for both the redeemed and the unredeemed. Listen to what he says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. As believers in Christ, we have so much to look forward to. So much to look forward to. You know the real problem? Is we just don't look forward to it enough. We look forward to things here far more than we look forward to the heavenly things that we should be setting our minds on. And I'm included in that. Nothing will be able to prevent... This change 
that is going to take place. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He says that over and over and over again in chapter 6, which we will see. Before the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the promise to all who are in Christ Jesus. It's a promise to us. We need to live in that. We need to, we need to take that as our own. We need to wear that and show the rest of the world the hope that lies within us, that sure promise of God that is going to come to pass for us because of Jesus Christ and our relationship to Him. Let's make that so this week. You'll get an opportunity somewhere along the way to tell someone or to show someone that hope that lies in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the blessing of being here together. We thank you that uh, you have given us your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would take this, this whole truth about eternal life, life you have given to us, life that we possess right now, the hope that in the future our bodies will be changed. And that eternal life will continue on in a brand new, glorified, heavenly body that we will live in with you forever and ever. Take these, I pray we take these truths with us and believe them and live them for the sake of our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.